So we're in a two-week series called Discipleship in a Consumer Culture. So this uh, really applies to us because we need discipleship, which is uh, increasingly learning to follow the way of Jesus. We call people to unite with us in the way of Jesus. And we live in a consumer culture. So not to belabor this, but I've, I've given a very similar sermon several times on the same passage. So if you've heard me speak on this, you may recall some of this. But all the stuff is still there and still needed, and I forget as well. So I figured if I forget, you probably do too, so it's worth the reminders. Uh, Back in 2015, I I found a Huffington Post article called, America Has More Self-Storage Facilities Than McDonald's, because apparently we're all hoarders. And uh, so it says, turns out the only thing Americans may love more than Big Macs is hoarding. There's more self-storage facilities in America than there are McDonald's restaurants and Starbucks restaurants combined. And the numbers have gone up in 2023 from 2015. So there are now 50,000 self-storage facilities in America at the end of last year with a combined storage capacity of 2.3 billion square feet just storing our stuff, right? Compared to just under 13,500 McDonald's and... um, Let's see. Oh, and just over uh, under 16,000 Starbucks coffee spots. So us Americans, we love our stuff, right? So much so that we have a whole industry just storing stuff. And and in fact, uh, most people um, that have a garage, not most people, let me get this right. Um, 65% of Americans who rent a storage unit have a garage, but they rent the storage unit anyway. That's a lot. So 50,000 self-storage facilities in our country now. When I was three years old, so I'm 42, you do the math, back in the 80s, um, there was about 6,600 storage units. So it's exponential growth of just stuff and storage units. So we've got a huge um, case for spring cleaning that we've we've ever seen, and um, So all of that to say, we are just enmeshed in a consumer culture. So let me pray for us again as we continue this series about investing for the good life, as Dave talked about last week, and today, investing for the good of others. Father, thanks for the morning. Thank you for um, your word, your word that is as timely today as it was in 2015, as it was when Jesus said the words, as it was when Paul wrote them. Um, And it'll just be timeless until Christ returns and we get to be with him forever in community. I pray for our community here that you would teach us um, how grace can take us so much further than the law ever could as far as investment for our good life, but also the good of others. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want to invite up here uh, six people. They are, as listen, you guys got to come on up, come on up, so we can get these stories shared. Okay, at the end of last Sunday, uh, Dave's teaching, he had five envelopes with an undisclosed amount of cash in them. Everyone remember this? And he handed some out, he put some up here. These are the people that took the uh, envelopes with an undisclosed amount of cash. Come on up, don't be shy, we can go from here all the way over. 
Um, so we're going to hear just quickly their stories of how they stewarded the money of Tall Gra- or sorry Mosaic Church for the kingdom. Okay, so again, this was their money that they were to steward creatively for kingdom purposes. So let's see who would like to start. Raise your hand high and clear. Okay, so uh, this Misty Lemoyne is going to start. So f- share with us how much money was in your envelope and what did you do with it? Okay, there was thirty dollars in my envelope. Yeah, right on your chair. <laughs> there was $30 in my envelope. And when uh, Dave brought the envelope concept up and said, well, automatically the, um, my single friends were on my heart. And so Valentine's is usually pretty hard for single women because they see a lot of people in relationships get gifts. So I'm going to bless four of my single friends with Valentine's. Awesome. Now, quick question for you. Did you feel less the same or more joy after stewarding this money? More joy. Okay, good. (laughs) All right. We'll go ahead. Journey, you ready to share? I got uh, $20 in my envelope, and I still haven't decided who to give it to. Kind of waiting for God to put someone in my path that I feel like actually really needs it, and... Just going to wait for that to happen. Awesome. So we can hold her accountable. You can ask her next week. This is her money, right? But she is a steward of it to invest for the kingdom creatively. So we get look forward to hearing about that. And um, in our envelope was $20. Lynn Salisbury here, by the way. Sorry. I'm sorry. Lynn Salisbury. Just in our envelope was $20. We added some more to it. We gave it to our neighbor up on the hill, Jody. And um, she has a ministry to the homeless in Junction City, and she had already made 15 sacks of food up, so she took our money and went and bought hand warmers and um, plastic capes because she knew this cold weather was coming. Awesome. So you, uh, you added to it, it inspired you to contribute more. Were you guys, did it bring you more joy, less joy, same joy after participating in that? It was just fun to be a part. Just fun to be a part of generosity. Great. That's good. All right. Suzanne. Um, I had $50 in my envelope, and um, <clears throat> I decided I, just, I wanted to do an act of kindness to a community of people that may not always get noticed. And so there's the Manhattan Housing Authority building um, right across from the post office. And so I went and bought some McDonald's gift certificates um, I also added some of my own money, and um, and I was really this was yesterday um, morning, and I was really hoping that there would be people there because otherwise I was just going to have to leave them in the lobby. I went the day before and talked to the director and said, "Can I do this?" You know, and they were said, "Yeah, that's great." Anyway, there were I met Crystal, Larry, and Alan, and then another guy whose name I didn't get, and just had some really fun conversations with them. Helped one gal look up. Uh, a scooter that she needed. She was just out of the hospital, had a full-on conversation with Larry about how AA is kind of like church. And, and yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just a hoot. I just loved it. And, um, so gave them the gift certificates. And then Crystal said she had, she would give the other one. I got five of them. She had, she would give the other one to her friend. So that was awesome. And then I left some flowers there with a sign on it for people to take them. Very cool. So what was in your heart, stirring in your heart as you left that interaction? Oh, it was really fun. I actually had wished that I could, that there had been more people down there and I could have talked to more of them. But yeah, it was just, it was just really fun to to get to know them. 
Cool, that's so great. Give it up for our six recipients here of these envelopes. Thank you all. Thank you all so much. So I hope you're, you're hearing, one, the creativity of generosity and how much fun. I think fun's a good word, you know, maybe even a more natural word for us than joy. And also that the uh, generosity seemed to beget generosity, right? People wanting to add more to it. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see what happens with those who receive this type of creative generosity and how they might pay it forward. So thanks so much for participating in that. And thanks, Mosaic Church, for your investment in that illustration. That's awesome. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8 and a little bit in chapter 9. And this, uh, this passage that we're going to talk about, I feel like is, it's just the best passage about generosity and what fuels and really um, should stir us up to become sacrificially generous people. So at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 8, I call this the Macedonian floor formula. So Macedonia is a, is a place that's about 360 miles away from Corinth. And um, here's, here's the formula. Paul's writing to me, he says, now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about and here it is, the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So freely given grace that's available to everyone who has breath in their lives, the grace that God has given in the midst of a severe trial. So they are in the middle of, you know, we've experienced severe trial globally with this pandemic. You might think of trials that you face. The Macedonians are in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. So you mix all of that up, and it says it welled up in rich generosity. Paul says, I testify that they, the Macedonian church, as Paul writes to the Corinth, which was a wealthy church, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. That's the sacrificial part, entirely on their own not stirred up by the law or even by Paul's exhortation. Just on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. So there was a, 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 a famine going on across the, the region, and they were wanting to invest and give. So that'd be kind of like Paul, you know, showing up here, if he were to do so, and be like, listen, listen, Mosaic Church, listen, Manhattan. Let me tell you what's happening in St. Louis. They are crushing it for the gospel. Come on, guys, you can do it. Let's go. A little healthy competition even, right? He is utilizing the Macedonian example to stir up this wealthy church, the church in Corinth, to also excel in this act of uh, grace, which is giving. So our, our big idea not only does guilt and shame motivation or law motivation, it doesn't feel good, uh -oh, hold up. it also is not very effective, especially in the long term and for maximum impact. Whereas grace motivation, as we'll learn, it feels great and it's also very effective, especially in the long term and for maximum impact. So let's open the scriptures. Um, just to prove I've preached on this a ton. Those are my last four. This passage, that's it. That's all you get. Let's see if this works. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. 
He says, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. So this church, they're doing some really, really great things. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. And here's his rationale. Don't forget to at least give the tithe, 10% of your income. Do we need to review the Old Testament? Come on, guys, pull it together. There's a little asterisk. This is not what Paul wrote. So when Paul had the, the perfect opportunity to teach the tithe, he didn't. It doesn't show up in the New Testament when we talk about generosity within the church. This is actually what Paul says. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So you guys are excelling in so many areas. So let me, let me hold this out for you. What about giving? True test of your uh, embrace or experience of grace. So this is a, um, a quote on tithing from a book called Then, Now, Next, A Biblical Vision of the Church, the Kingdom, and the Future by Dr. David McDonald. So Edie Doan um, is involved in our community, gave me this book when we first planted Tallgrass Church in 2018 by this guy who has a vision for the future, for the future church. And this is what he says. This is the problem with tithing. Despite its widespread advocacy within the contemporary church, tithing in the Bible was neither unilaterally applied nor enforced. For starters, there was more than one tithe, sometimes requiring as much as 23%. So if you really want to talk tithe, it's actually going to be much more than 10% from the Old Testament. Hey, there we go. Someone's generous. That's great. We'll have to hear from them later. Sometimes only being paid once in a lifetime, like the story of Abraham till Melchizedek. Very interesting story. And we never see the New Testament church enforcing the tithe among the Gentile converts. When we advocate tithing today, we're introducing new legislation that requires our people to give. The old paradigm of hoping for more tithers, people who are adamant about giving the first 10% of their income every paycheck, every week for the rest of their lives, will ultimately bankrupt us. Why? Because tithing is ultimately rooted in obedience for its own sake. Most people cannot tithe, or at least think they cannot tithe. Most people will not tithe. The stats bear that out. Those who can and will do so sometimes. But when we tithe, at best we feel relief. We're finally in step with God's demands as we perceive them. And if we fail to tithe, we feel like we're incurring a debt that must be repaid before we can ever truly be free of our guilt. So I've been married to Maris 17 plus years. And imagine we come to our anniversary and I give her a card and I say, man, I felt so obligated to give you that card. Now just don't bug me for anything else. Relationship's not going anywhere good quick, right? The, the, the giving in that relationship is not motivated by law and obligation. It's by relationship, Right? He goes on, from the standpoint of church administration, tithing is a flawed paradigm. It makes a good floor, but a bad ceiling. Giving 10%, it's a great place to start for a serious follower of Jesus. But the real beauty lies in giving generously and realizing you've set aside a significant portion of your income to love and serve others. In this light, all that money becomes play money. You're a steward of what God has given you. So what can I do with all this stuff? Yes, I got to pay myself, right, for clothes, food, a house. But beyond that, I get to do all sorts of things, like we kind of heard here. 
It's your investment capital in the kingdom of God. You can give it wherever you like, redirecting the flow of God's generosity. And as Dave pointed out last week, we have an opportunity to take material wealth now and invest it into eternity. That's the economy of God's grace. It's awesome. So you're redirecting the flow of God's generosity like a culvert in a river. You can place it wherever you wish as long as you place it back within the hands of the Lord. It's exciting and it's liberating. So first of all, we completely welcome anyone and everyone who does not consider yourself a serious follower of Jesus. In fact, we welcome if you, you, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus at all. That is completely fine. However, we want, our, we want to unite people in the way of Jesus. So this is where we want to head together, Lord willing. Discipleship in the way of Jesus towards sacrificial generosity. Not just holding out 10% as sort of like the rubric. If you hit it, you're good, you feel good. If you don't, you feel bad, and that's it. No, we're moving towards sacrificial generosity. Paul goes on. In verse 9, he says, I'm not commanding you. And then verse 9, he says, For you know, Corinthian church, and hopefully Mosaic church, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I'm gonna introduce a tool to you that I have found so helpful in understanding Christian living or gospel living. It's called gospel circles. So if you're a note taker, you like to put pen to paper, just draw three concentric circles we have all these notes online, but as we talked about in our previous series, um, sometimes pen to paper really helps you solidify things neurologically. So gospel circles. In the middle is the gospel. Christ died for our sins, right? He did for me what I could not do for myself so I can have a relationship with God the Father. That's the gospel. That's the heart. That's the core. And because of the gospel, there are several things that are true, and we sing about it all the time. Like, I am your beloved. You know, God is my father. Um, there is no condemnation. These types of things are true because of the gospel. And then flowing from the gospel in those truths is gospel living, or you might call it gospel behavior, gospel conduct. And in the New Testament, our behavior how we are called to live is always linked directly back to the gospel, not to Old Testament law. Okay, so in this passage, here we see uh, bolded the gospel, for your sake he became poor. That is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Hanging, you know, naked on a cross, giving everything that he had, on your behalf. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. And because of that, the truth that flows directly from the gospel is that so you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, Paul's kind of mixing uh, material wealth with spiritual wealth here, right? Not every, everybody who follows Jesus is going to be materially wealthy. But as we, Dave talked about last week, most of us in this room even if you're below poverty line in the U.S., relatively wealthy to the rest of the world. So we do have general material wealth, but for sure, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ because of the gospel. So we are rich because 
of his generosity. And so the gospel truth that, or the gospel living that should flow from this is that we would excel in this grace of giving. And here it's talking specifically financial giving, material giving, like the Macedonian church. So this passage, look for the gospel circles. Um, It shows up all throughout the scriptures. If you're reading closely, look where the gospel is in the passage, find the gospel truths connected to that, and then what are you being asked to do in light of the gospel? Another analogy you can think on, um, my dad had a uh, Model D uh, tractor with a big old flywheel. So I remember once um, trying to get that thing going, right? Getting the flywheel going initially is tough, but once the flywheel's going, then you have, what, lots of power available, and it just keeps going, right? So that's kind of like grace. You know, it might take us a while to understand and experience it, but once we get it, then it really powers and fuels us. Or, if that analogy doesn't work, looking at Ben Jones down here. The arc reactor, right? Yeah. So think about uh, the gospel is the arc reactor of Christian living, okay? I told Henry I'd have a very complex slide that he wouldn't like. Too much going on. You get the point. Once we understand and are gripped by and experience the gospel, the living part starts to flow out of that, not the law. Once you get grace, there's no limit to the sacrificial generosity you're capable of. And we talk about in our church, or we're, we're getting ready to talk about um, increasingly, some different marks, some values of our church. And one of them that our action team worked on and our elder team approved is grace over shame. You could say grace over guilt, grace over law. That's what we want to teach. That's what we want to preach. That's what we believe the Bible teaches teaches us. And not only because grace feels better than shame, grace is more effective to get the work of God done than shame is. Now, there are some who, who, when they think of grace, they think of just like a get-out-of-jail-free card or a cheap grace. Bonhoeffer, a a writer during World War II, wrote about cheap grace or easy believism. So we're not into that. We're into grace that grips us and moves our lives to more Christ-likeness. In, in Titus 2, it says that the grace of God has appeared to offer salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So grace, properly understood and experienced and lived out, actually teaches us, disciples us, to say no to the things that are not good, worldly passions, maybe consumerism's considered in that, And conversely, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives here and now in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the advent of Christ, the second advent of Christ, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the gospel, who gave himself for us, gospel truth, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So you can probably read that and see gospel, gospel truths, gospel living. Grace over shame. In then now next, I just love the way he puts some of these things. Thus the kingdom of God, when planted within us, bursts forth in abundance 
It is the power that multiplied the loaves and the fishes, that transformed water into wine, that perpetuated the widow's daily oil and flour, stories from the New Testament. Consider that in the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, there were leftovers. They went from complete scarcity to abundance like that. That's what's on God's heart. In the story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with perfume, the value of that offering was a year's wages. What else is that if not extravagance? What does that tell us about God, about his riches, about his proclivity for abundance, or his penchant for abundance, or his bias, his lean towards abundance? He is not miserly. He is not stingy. He's not a Scrooge. He has a proclivity towards abundance for you, for me, in and through us to others. Paul, in a letter to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding areas, he says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So it's not just a one and done experience of the gospel and we move on and live our lives. He has lavished on us. He set a feast for us. He has a heart of abundance. I've shared this story um, before and I didn't ask Judy and Paxton if I could share it again, but I am, so. Uh, there, was an, there was a time, uh, and it may seem like a small thing, but it, it was a big thing to me. They took us to Harry's uptown, uh, which is closed down. It's like the nicest restaurant in town. Who remembers Harry's? Who doesn't remember Harry's? Anyone? Man, time flies. Okay. So it's where Arrow Cocktail Lounge is now, the nicest restaurant in town. And they took us there for a New Year's Eve. No real rhyme or reason, just our, as friends. And they said, you need to get anything you want here. And they know that I'm checking the, the menu, I check the prices, even if I'm trying to bless someone else. I mean, I can't help but calculate, ooh, I hope they choose the, you know, something other than the steak. And they, they, they made us go all out. They pushed me to order a cocktail, at least as I remember it, and an appetizer. Don't look at the menu price. And I remember, I, I experienced some anxiety. Why, why am I crying, guys? It's over a Harry's meal. I must miss it over the generosity of my friends. I remember I experienced anxiety in that moment. Why? Because I didn't know how to receive grace. I didn't know how to receive abundance. So I had some anxiety. I, tried, I had to settle into what they were offering to me freely and to resist the urge to try to look to how to repay that, Right? So that, that experience, I remember that experience. That's something I aspire to be more like, become more like, someone who would give abundantly and freely. And as we even heard up here, and as that story um, begins to play out in my life, generosity begets generosity. Not obedience-driven generosity, but generosity flowing from grace and extravagance. Just like sleep begets sleep, parents out there know that sleeplessness begets Sleeplessness, the more tired your kid is, the less they're going to sleep. The flip side is um, generosity begets generosity. You guys got it? Got that? Okay. Get the gospel. Get grace. Our church will move to become a sacrificially generous church. 
We'll be able to pay bills, keep lights on, all of that stuff, rent space, but so much more to bless our community and beyond. So you're probably thinking, all right, Grace, got it, that's awesome. So uh, exactly how much do I give again? Because we just, we, we go there. So let's get practical. Let's get a little practical here. Next steps. We'll pull these straight from First Corinthians 8 and 9. So think in terms of giving sacrificially, which we've been talking about. You know, give until it hurts. That's kind of a good standard to consider until it's a little uncomfortable. Um, that's sacrificially. And, you know, sacrificial giving begets sacrificial giving, that you develop a tolerance for that type of generosity. Two, give intentionally. Um, so not just like on a whim. Like there's an intentionality that should come with it. And eventually, eventually, hopefully, we can get to giving cheerfully and experiencing the joy of giving cheerfully or giving sacrificially. So give sacrificially, which this is a review. We've, we've read this passage. Paul says that the Macedonian church, they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Um, they urgently pleaded uh, for the privilege of sharing. So here we have a poor church. Remember, extreme poverty, extreme, very severe trial, um, giving beyond what they could give. And to the point where Paul, probably some of the other leaders are like, Macedonians, back off. You guys are good. Like, take care of yourselves. We're going to go down to Corinth. They're really wealthy. We'll put a little pressure on them. Hopefully gospel-centered you know, centered pressure. And they're just like, we want to give. They're experiencing joy. They're like, don't, you know, don't, don't keep this blessing away from me, right? So they're sacrificial. Um, one way to think about this is it's really hard for us to get out of our mind that 10% sort of as a benchmark. So if you're struggling with that, you know, just make it 11 or 12%, right? Then you're like completely random. Or rather, consider a graduated giving plan. So where you, the more you make, so if you're, in a, if you're in a role where your income can go up, you consider giving a higher percentage. Uh, why might I say that? Well, think about a family of four. Let's think about our town. A family of four making 50,000 gives 10%. How much do they live off of? You do the math, 40,000, 40, or sorry, 45,000. Take the same family of four. They make 100,000. They give 10%. How much do they live off of? 90,000. They live off of twice as much as the family of four who made half what they did. Does that seem like kingdom or gospel or like, no, it just seems like we chose 10% arbitrarily. What if that family of four that made 100,000 gave 55%? That's a huge stretch. But you see what I'm saying? We can consider and think differently about sacrificial giving. Jesus gave sacrificially, as you know. Second, give intentionally. So the next chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 5, he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. So look at that intentionality. They are, they're making a promise of a gift, orderly arrangements. They're, they're really keeping the record straight. There's an intentionality here. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, if you're going to reap, that's an intentionality thing, right? 
You're, you're intentionally doing something now and expecting it to bear fruit later. Paul's not showing up like a big tent revival, pulling on their emotional heartstrings and passing the plate five times until he pays his bills. There's an intentionality he expects and, and wants to train and teach them in their generosity. He says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, which can be that sort of emotional pull. I mean, emotions are good, um, but for God loves a cheerful giver, he says. So I want you to just pay attention to the intentionality of giving. One other quick passage on um, that intentionality. So in 1 Corinthians 16, so before this letter that we're reading, Paul says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That's a little bit more like if you make 100,000, it's gonna be a lot more than 50,000, if you make 50,000, right? Or if you make 25,000. So we're seeing that graduated giving um, idea show up here. Saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. He's like, I don't wanna have to show up, you know, Cue up the band and really push, pull on the heartstrings. Like, get this stuff figured out intentionally. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. There's checks and balances. When we're dealing with money, it's important. We don't want scandals. We don't want misuse of funds, especially stewarded to the kingdom. And that shows up even in the early church. So, intentionality. Give this some thought between you and God in conversation with your family, with friends, with loved ones. Okay. One more quote here from uh, the author of Then Now Next. He says, in the same way we're meant to be generous with our finances or intentional with our finances, we're also meant to be generous with our homes, our churches, with Christ himself. We ought to be sharing Christ intentionally with everyone. And by this, he doesn't mean um, for us to perform our prepared spiels about sin and redemption. Although there are times when doors are gonna open up for you to boldly declare the mystery of Christ, the good news, articulate so people understand that God has done for them what they could not do for themselves, but that we would invite others to share the life of Christ, the light of Christ, and the joy of following Jesus. So we are to steward everything. We are stewards, not owners. God owns it all. He has given us our resources, our money, our, our homes, our cars, our space corporately to steward. So what might it look like for our church to bring great intentionality to our generosity together? Not only families, individuals doing that, but what might we be able to do? The type of creative ideas that were generated within a one week's time. I mean, any number of those could, could develop to be a whole ministry of blessing our location here downtown, we had an outreach team lunch meeting, the first one last week, and a lot of the thoughts were like, how do we steward this space we have in the heart of our town, where so many of the marginalized community live and are? How do we steward that for kingdom purposes? We invest in orphan helpers. Ron, actually, right now is in Central America on a trip. He'll shoot a video for us so we can get a report. Working with youth that are in juvenile detention facilities, so a percentage of our funds every month goes to support that type of work. Helping international students, some of our funds go there. 
international students from 100 plus countries showing up on our campus in our backyard, people who need friends, they need help here in America. And many of them need to hear the good news of Christ as well. So with some intentionality, sacrificial giving, we can do a lot together. And then finally, give cheerfully. So uh, in, yeah, same passage. Notice he says, not as an exaction. That's the end of uh, verse five. In the end of verse seven, he says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God loves all of us, okay? So if you're there like, man, I am not a cheerful giver. The message is not that God does not love you, but his heart is that you would grow to become a cheerful lover. And I also want to tell you uh, that, If you read that passage and you're like, I just don't want to give. I'm not cheerful. I guess I won't give. That's not the intention here either. Paul's saying God loves a cheerful giver. So you should be like, how do I become that? That's that's the pathway. That's the path of joy. That's the path of discipleship. And as Dave pointed out last week, and I'll just remind you, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So if you want your heart to be somewhere, the way to do that, put your treasure there, right? I have not yet used my fan dual betting money, uh, but a lot of people are, are betting on sports, right? If you drop money on that game, guess what? You're into that game. That's, that's the concept there. That's the path to become a cheerful giver is to start investing, right? Jesus gave cheerfully. We read, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up. And um, as they make their way up, we'll close with, with this. So the church of the future will be filled with Christians who understand their role as evangelists. They'll recognize that the good news is too good to keep secret. The grace that they've experienced is too good to not share. They'll spread the message of Christ, his church, throughout the networks. In our culture, ironically, it's actually consumers who tend to make the best evangelists. People who go eat at the restaurants are the ones who go and share the good news about that restaurant, right? It's, it's consumers. Uh, I'm case in point. There's things that I am passionate about that I have received that I share with you all all the time and become a broken record. He says the church of the future will be generous regardless of the miserliness of her beneficiaries. We'll be givers regardless of what the world gives back. When we give generously and sacrificially, we exorcise our bitterness. We cast out our bitterness. Selfishness is septic, but generosity is the algorithm of a joy. So Mosaic, let's invest for the good of others and also for the good life for ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you for um, Paul's clarity that he is not, he was an expert in the law. He was a Pharisee, but he did not leverage the law to get people to do stuff. He preached the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the lavish grace of Jesus Christ. And out of that, there is a way to live in line with your son. I pray over our church that we would grow as individuals, as families, to become sacrificial and intentional and cheerful givers 
and that as a, as a community of faith, we would become known to be those kinds of people. We love you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.